If you have your Bible, you can read along with me. It's Acts 20, verses 17 through 24. Acts 20, 17 through 24. Paul is speaking to the Ephesian elders. From Miletus, he sent a message to Ephesus, asking the elders of the church to meet him. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you. The entire time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears, enduring the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. I did not shrink from doing anything helpful, proclaiming the message to you and teaching you publicly and from house to house, as I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus. And now, as a captive to the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and persecutions are waiting for me. But I do not count my life of any value to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the good news of God's grace. Several years ago, Colette and I had the privilege of traveling with Bert and Jerry to Germany and Austria. Bert wanted to make one last trip to, to Europe, but having to deal with all the luggage and packing and unpacking and repacking the car every day was just kind of a, out of reach. And so they made us a deal. They would pay our way if we would take time off from work, go with them, and deal with all the baggage. That was the deal of a lifetime. And I've been trying to get them to do one last trip to Europe now for several, several more years. We toured all these wonderfully picturesque towns uh, from Nuremberg to Vienna along the Romantische Strasse. And it's just wonderful. Uh, we visited places that we had never dreamed of. We drove down cobblestone streets so narrow that it would make a bicyclist feel claustrophobic. We uh, had interesting conversations with people wherever we went. And in every town, we checked out the church or the cathedral, depending on the size of the town we were in. And as you might imagine, there are many, many magnificent and ancient edifices there in Europe. It's just wonderful. All different colors, sizes, ages, but all of them had one significant trait in common, a lack of worshipers. Those beautiful buildings around which life and culture revolved for centuries now stand as relics almost and museum pieces. For the last 20 years, 20, 25, 30 years, we've been talking about the post-Christian Europe and the dwindling number of people who follow Jesus. But when you go there and you see it with your own eyes, 
it does something to you. Last week I talked with some Canadian Adventist Christians and we were comparing our two countries, not only pol politically but spiritually, and they said, you know, we're, we're ahead of you guys. We're right behind Europe, but you're right behind us. And what we're going through, you will go through. And it's true, isn't it? We're all headed that way. And that begs the question, who is passing faith on to the new generations? Hmm? Who is doing that? This morning we're going to think about that question in the context of our own lives right here where we live them. And as we do, I hope the answer to that question is we are. We are the ones who will pass faith on to the very people who are living around us who need to know Jesus. As Tim read for us, one generation will commend your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They will tell of the glory of, the, of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all men might know of your mighty acts and your glorious reign. And as we sang, tell out my soul the greatness of the Lord to children's children and forevermore. Those verses describe how the gospel advances heart by heart, and it happens not through the magnificence of buildings, but through the intentional communication between people. But to do that, it takes risk. That's the theme of what I want to talk to you about this morning. To advance the, co the gospel requires risk, and we'll begin with a, with a story. This is a true story. In the hot, stinking stairwell, somewhere between the 10th and 12th floor, Judith Reese collapsed yet again, gasping for breath. She was utterly spent, like the eerie, nearly deserted building around her, but she was not alone. Beside her stood a sweaty companion, pleading, urging, begging her not to give up, to rise just once more and descend a little further. But Judith couldn't move anymore. Because she was asthmatic, and the invisible fingers gripped her esophagus and choked off her air supply in the smoky room. Judith was an administrative assistant who worked on the 88th floor, and the younger man standing over her was a Port Authority inspector by the name of Jeff Gertler, who worked a couple of cubicles away. The routine of their day had begun the same way it had begun thousands of days previous to that, in their 220-acre vertical office complex. But at 8.46 that morning, all traces of routine blew apart as American Airlines Flight 11, with 20,000 gallons of jet fuel and 92 people aboard, ripped into the North Tower and disintegrated a half a dozen floors above them. With the elevators ruined, Judith decided she would stay in her office and await rescue. But a few minutes later, smoke began seeping through the ceiling. And because smoke is intolerable for an asthmatic, she made the decision to leave, which meant walking down 87 levels. Jeff Gertler, the Port Authority inspector, knew the struggle she faced. Eight years before, in 1993, a terrorist bomb had blown up in the basement of her tower, and he had helped Judith slowly descend the same stairs in that mandatory evacuation. It had taken three hours, 
and he had helped her all the way down. Of course, eight years previous, there hadn't been any smoke. Now, as Reese headed for the stairwell door, Jeff decided he would help her once again. And again, it had been an agonizing ordeal. Although they were the first two to evacuate their floor, the descent was so difficult they soon found themselves straggling at the rear of the procession, and then eventually they were all alone. In the hot, smoky air, Judith could manage no more than two or three flights before she had to stop and rest, gasping for oxygen. And now finally she lay on the landing as Jeff implored her once more with the promise that he could feel a little breeze of fresh air wafting up from the open door of the lobby only 10 floors below. They were almost out, he promised, just a little further. It was 10.20 a.m., more than an hour and a half since that first explosion ripped through their tower, and for over 20 minutes since they heard the unbelievable rumor from an exhausted firefighter going up that the South Tower had already collapsed. It was at that point, as Judith lay gasping on the floor, that Jeff had to make a tough decision. If the South Tower was gone, he knew the demise of the North Tower was not only probable, but probably imminent. The stairwell was now deserted. If he took off, he could be outside in a matter of minutes. He would live. Judith, however, probably would not. On the other hand, if he stayed with her, he didn't know what would happen. He would be taking a huge risk. He might die, but he might be able to get her out. Jim Dyer and Kevin Flynn tell the story of Jeff and Judith and, and hundreds of others in, of the, of the 14,000 people that fought for life in the World Trade Center in their book, 102 Minutes, subtitled, the untold story of the fight to survive inside the Twin Towers. It was first published in 2005, updated in 2013. It's an amazing book. Time in the Trade Center ticked by for exactly 102 minutes between the time the first plane impacted the tower until that final tower collapsed. 102 terrible minutes. At the 94-minute mark, Judith and Jeff sat all alone on the 10th floor landing waiting until she could suck in enough air to stand and make one final attempt. Well, that's kind of a worst-case scenario story, but it sets up a question for us to consider this morning. How much risk am I willing to take in life? How often do I live in such a way that I am willing to lay something of value on the line with the possibility of losing it in order to gain something that might be of greater value. Risk comes in all forms, and it comes to each one of us every day. Every time we get behind the wheel, we risk scratching the paint, wrecking the car, even dying. But the odds aren't high, and so we take the risk, and in return, we gain mobility. And when our kids get behind the wheel... The odds deteriorate substantially, but we swallow, we worry more, we pray harder, and we take it. There are big companies that own large buildings in bustling financial districts of busy cities that bet on the odds 
these risks and, and, and hundreds like them. They are called insurance companies. Sometimes people take what we might consider a not-too-smart risk. My son likes to snowboard in the trees. He still does this every winter. We used to plead with him. We say, Andrew, please don't squander your one and only life snowboarding in the trees. He watches these extreme snowboarding videos, you know, and he used to have this poster on his wall with a caption that said, Bones heal, glory is forever. Some risks are foolish. Others have the promise of priceless payoff, like Jeff Gertler at minute 94, weighing the odds of living another day, eyeing the escape route even as the pathetic panting of Judith Reese wheezing for oxygen fills his ears. Or, like Jesus, like Jesus who took the odds and went to the cross on the chance that lost human beings would say yes to the gift of life and live forever. You and me, living forever. Jesus took that huge risk and died for us on the chance we might say yes. That's all it takes is a yes and a thank you. And the chance that we would then share the story with others who might say yes. There's a risk associated with most things in life, at least in a broken world there is. There's risk associated with sharing the gospel. In fact, here's this morning's message if you want to boil it all the way down to the, to, the, to the bumper sticker length, okay? The gospel advances by risk. Always. The question for each one of us is this. Do I risk what I have now in order to advance it on the chance that some lost person might move a little closer to God? And if so, how much risk will I take? I want you to think now about the words that Bruce read to us a few moments ago in Acts chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, keep them open to Acts 20, and, and the verses we'll look at will be on the screen. Here's the context. This is Paul's farewell address to his friends in Miletus. He knows he's never going to see any of them again, right? This is like his last will and testament to them. He's on his final journey, which will ultimately lead to Rome. And we, from our vantage point, know it doesn't end well in Rome. He's come from Athens, up around the Greek peninsula, stopping to visit Christian believers all the way. He's en route to Jerusalem. He's bringing gifts of money he's collected from all the churches to help the poor believers there. And here's what he tells them in verse 20. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Webster defines risk as a chance of injury, damage, or loss. Nowadays, there are certain risks that are considered to be very cool. We've got programs like Survivor. It's in its 35th season this year. People like that show. We've got daredevil stunts like bungee jumping. 
and air surfing. And there's a whole genre of stuff called extreme thrills. Okay? You can base jump uh, in a little bat-like suit that turns you into a kind of human flying squirrel. And you can swoop down through canyons next to cliffs at 175 miles an hour, missing rocks by inches. And then pop your parachute and land. There's another one. Get this. It's where you parachute out of an airplane. But you don't wear your parachute when you jump out the door. You throw it out first. And then you jump after it, shootless, you catch that thing in midair, you strap it on, and pull the cord, all before you impact the ground at 140 miles an hour. Oh. What motivates people to do that kind of stuff? Huh? This carnal grabs of glory as if their life means nothing to them. Paul defines it a little differently. He says, yeah, my life means nothing to me either. If, if I can finish the race complete the task, testify to the gospel, and tell people about grace. That's what matters, he said. That's what really counts. The gospel advances by risk. It costs something. Now, here's the thing about risk. It reveals who you trust. Risk reveals who you trust. Trail running and air surfing and shootless skydiving show that you trust yourself. Your skills, your prowess, and courage. Taking a risk to share the gospel shows that you trust God. Here's why. First of all, it is God who creates the compulsion in our hearts. This is verse 22. Listen to Paul now. He says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem. Sharing the gospel and talking with people about Jesus is not something we do to showcase our stuff. This is something God begins in our hearts, and, and, and he whispers to us over and over, and he reminds us about it, and he invites us into it until, if we don't resist, if we pay attention, it becomes a compulsion. Something we simply must do. Not something that we'd maybe like to do someday, but something essential, non-negotiable, something we are compelled to do. And this, I believe, is what we desperately need as a people at this time in this place. We must have a compulsion from the Spirit of God. Which means it's not something that we can manufacture for ourselves or will up for ourselves from within ourselves or achieve through discipline. It's something God must put in us by his Holy Spirit. And he will if we will be available to him. God does it, but we have to be available, willing to receive it. And we need to ask God to do it for us here. It's not that he doesn't want to. God doesn't want to give up on any single person, does he? He wants every person, if it were possible, to come to salvation, right? But we've got to be willing to receive the compulsion, to receive the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives so that the things which matter most to God will start to matter to us. And that requires a yielded heart on our part, an attentiveness to his will. 
and openness to what he is trying to do. Because if we're not open, if we push back, the progress of the gospel will stagnate in our lives. We will miss out on what we were made to do, but we will be safe. We will be risk-free. I need the compulsion of God's Spirit. Now, I don't know how it is for lots of you people out there when it comes to this kind of stuff, but I can suspect what it's like because I know what it's like for me. All kinds of stuff clamors for the best of my time and the best of, of my effort. So I pray daily for God's Spirit, and I ask Him to make me willing to accept it. That's the other part. God will give the Spirit, but somehow or another we have to be made willing to accept it. And He has to do that too, because we can't make ourselves be willing to accept it. I need to be willing to risk the things I value for the things that God values. And I wish that you would pray for that too, every day. I wish every one of you would pray for it every single day for this whole church, this community of believers gathered right here, right now. Imagine how things might change around here if we all were praying like that. The communication of the gospel is not some optional thing. It is something we must do unless we want to become relics, museum pieces, and yet, even when we're compelled, it will still be risky because of two things, okay? Number one, we don't know what's going to happen. We're not omniscient. Paul says in verse 22, I'm going to Jerusalem not knowing what will happen to me there. I don't know. God knows what's going to happen. I don't. We know in bits and pieces as God reveals it to us, but not the whole story, not how things are going to turn out in the end. And of course, we're not only not omniscient, we're not omnipotent. In other words, we can't even control what's going to happen. We try, but we can't. Paul says, I am going without knowing. Living this way kind of goes against human nature, don't you think? Basic human nature wants to know and stay. To take intoxicating refuge in predictability. To find a nice security in familiarity. Not a whole lot of change. But a call to risk for the gospel's sake is really a call back to faith. Because it requires us to go without knowing. You only need faith when you don't know for sure. When you can't control things. That's when you need faith. And then desperation for God increases with risk. But so does discomfort. Risk and, and discomfort are synonymous. Look at what Paul says in verse 23. He says, I don't know what's going to happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. Discomfort. Risk, by definition, attacks and violates our comfort. Comfort is one of the basic human drives. It's what we strive for. It's like people have a built-in thermostat, only it doesn't measure temperature, it measures comfort level. You might call it a comfortostat. You get used to a certain level of comfort, and then it's really difficult to, to, to downsize from that. If the comfort level drops in any area of my life, then I begin to focus more and more energy on effort on, on restoring that. 
back to where it was. And not only that, but the level, level of comfort and security that we get used to seems to rise with prosperity. I heard a, a program on NPR not too long ago, and they were talking about the average size of the American home in square feet. In 1960, the average size of the American home was under 1,000 square feet. Single car garage, one bathroom. And this is the kind of house that I grew up in, 860 square feet, single bath, no dining room, no shower, just a tub, no basement, shared a bedroom and a bed with my brother from the time he was born till I left, left home. We did fine. Jeff Oxley lived two doors down. He played football with me in high school. His dad was vice president of Firestone Bank in Akron, and their house was exactly the same size of our house. They were all built at the same, si same time, you know? All the houses in, in our neighborhood, they were like houses all across America. But the guy on the radio said by 2007, the size of the average American home had risen to 2,300 square feet. Two and a half baths, double garage. Comfort is always on the rise. Of course, the average size dropped a little bit in the recession of 2008 and 9 and 10 and 11. And a lot of people had to downsize. And it was not easy. Comfort is always on the rise. And guess what? Real estate is booming again. So guess what? The average size is going back up. Yeah. Francis Schaeffer was an influential thinker who wrote a book on the, on the downward plunge of Western civilization. He contends that America, the American nation was founded and rose to greatness on the highest and most noble ideals the world has ever seen, but that in the end, the American people will trade away all their freedom and their noble principles for the promise of two things, peace and prosperity. Comfort and security. He wrote that in 1970. Most people spend most of their time eliminating the things in life that threaten comfort level. And here's a, another odd quirk about human nature. Often we would rather stay in a bad situation than risk more discomfort by making changes that would improve it. Numbers 14 is the classic illustration of this. Pharaoh had been literally working the Israelites to death in the slave labor camps of Egypt. The situation would, would not have been much different than the, the Nazi slave labor camps of the Second World War. The Egyptian taskmasters would probably be convicted of war crimes in a modern court. So God intervenes by sending a series of terrifying plagues of increasing lethal intensity, and he frees his people. He brings them to the border of a good land he's promised to give them, but when the spies check it out, they bring back a terrifying report. The people that live there are huge. The cities are fortified, and the people begin to wail and complain. And Numbers 14, 2 reports what they said. If only we had died back in Egypt, the slave labor camps. You know. If only we had died in the desert. The people who specialize in helping people break addictions say it this way. Until the pain of addiction becomes greater than the pain of getting well, people will re really not want to get well. Proverbs 22.13 says it like this. The sluggard says, there's a lion outside, or I will be murdered in the streets. So, better just stay inside where it's safe. 
comfortable with. That's called faithlessness. God invites us to risk, to experience a little discomfort, to take a step into uncertainty. He compels us to go without knowing. That's what God invited Abraham to do. He had a nice, comfortable, secure situation there in Ur, but he was a follower of God. And God said to him, get up, leave your father, your father's household, everything you have, and go to the land I will show you. Leave everything. Risk it all on me. Go, not knowing. Why? Why did God ask Abraham to do that? For the gospel so that all nations would become blessed through him. And that's the same reason he continues to ask us to do the very same thing. That's why his spirit attempts to compel us. It's not for an adrenaline rush or a badge of honor. It's for the chance that some hellbound sinner might catch a taste of the gospel and move a little closer to Jesus. Paul says, I am going not knowing, but I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given to me, the task of testifying to the gospel of grace. When it comes to the gospel, we can spend our lives staying safe or we can choose risky. It was Gita who said, the dangers of life are many and among them is safety. Safety doesn't advance the mission. Risk does. Life is an experience of going and not knowing that we might testify of the gospel. That's what we're here for. Okay. So here's the question for each of us to think about today. Maybe this afternoon as we eat together in a few moments, you know, why not ask this question? What's your Jerusalem? What's my Jerusalem? Where is it that God is calling me to advance the kingdom, to lay something I value on the line with the possibility of losing it on the chance to build a relationship and maybe share Jesus? Many of us, I think, could say, well, my Jerusalem is simply having a, having a spiritual conversation with somebody I know, maybe a friend or a neighbor or work associate or something like that. I know God wants me to do it. I sense his spirit compelling me, but I don't know what will happen if I do that. I don't want to be rejected. I don't want to look stupid. I don't want to face questions I can't answer. I don't want to jeopardize the friendship, taint the relationship. But really, what do we have to lose by that? In some countries today, they'll kill you for talking about Jesus. Not, not this day, in this country. Not now, for us. What's the worst that could happen? Well, you might get insulted. You might be called a wimp or a racist or be laughed at or ignored. Somebody might take you on in an intellectual challenge and back you into a corner and you won't have an answer and you'll feel dumb. On the other hand, what could you gain? Maybe the satisfaction of knowing that God has partnered with you and you with God to bring someone closer to him. You might gain a deeper friendship, a sense of purpose. Now, the odds are most people won't want to go that far. Most people will not, but some will. And some of you maybe don't even hang around with any lost people. You may not even have any friends that don't know Jesus. Maybe your Jerusalem is just getting close to some people that, that don't know Christ and making some new friendships. Two weeks ago, Tyler Long spoke with us here in Squim, 
And we're thinking about maybe having him come in the spring of 2019 and conduct a series of meetings here that explain the gospel and what the Bible teaches about life. But guess what? We're not planning to spend thousands of dollars to, to blanket the region with handbills with beasts on the cover on the chance that a couple of people who get them might be interested. We're counting on friendships to do that because in our culture, friends listen to friends. That's the way it is now. So we have a year and a half to invest, to risk our comfort and our way of life so that people around us might come to know Jesus. On the Today's Message panel of your bulletin today, down there at the bottom, you'll see three lines labeled one, two, three. They're blank. Those are there to help you begin thinking of people you know that you know need to get closer to Jesus. When you write his or her name on that line, it's like you're giving permission for God to compel you to invest in that person, even though you don't know what the outcome is going to be even though it will require risk on your part. And your life may have to change in order to make that investment possible. But you're saying, yes, it's okay, God. I want to care about what's important to you. So here I am. I have somebody that I have written on the line. I can't tell you a lot about it because I have been praying for this person for quite a while. And our little group on Wednesday has been praying for this person, and I have been talking with this person, and I expect that God is going to answer the prayer. I really do. And when this happens, that person is likely to start showing up here at worship, and I want to do what I can to preserve their privacy when they do. But it's coming time that I'm going to need to up the ante a little bit, and Colette and I have been brainstorming what we're going to do, ways that we can begin to invest more in this person's life with the aim of building the friendship and serving them and sharing with them the gospel. This person, it's a couple actually, a couple, already knows what we do for a living. So I think they know it's coming. I think so. That's okay. It's a risk. But God's plan is for them to be in the kingdom. There's nobody else in my neighborhood that I know of that's talking about it, that I know of. God's plan is to take the risk. And I'm hopeful that in some way God is going to let me have a little piece of that action. That's what I'm hoping for. So what's your Jerusalem? Is it someone God wants you to talk to? Is it some ministry you're being called to but you haven't said yes yet because it's going to cut in on the nice tidy order that you've established in your life and you want to protect it? Why not risk it? Why not? If it, is it financial? Is God asking you to be more generous with your money but you know that's going to cut into whatever level of comfort you've been enjoying now? Come on, take the risk. Is it a lifestyle issue? You know, people watch you. They watch me. Do we live like we value what God has said in his word, make choices that are consistent with his principles, even though it might not be popular? People watch. It's not comfortable to let go of things that you like, even when they're bad things. But the gospel advances through risk. Risk means discomfort at some level. It could mean temporary failure. But it always builds faith. It always reveals who you trust. We don't know how it's all going to end, but we do know what the end is going to be. The kingdom is going to come in its fullness. Of that, we are sure.
There are three possible outcomes for Judith Reese and Jeff Gertler on the 10th floor stairwell of the North Tower at minute 94. Here's possibility number one. At Judith's urging, Jeff chooses the way of the empty 20 flights, bounding down the stairs three at a time, passes the last of the stragglers in the lobby, escapes five minutes before the tower collapses. Meanwhile, on the 10th floor of the stairwell landing, Judith Reese has abandoned all hope and sits alone and defeated when the exploding sound of a hundred freight trains dropping from the sky fills her ears. They worked together for 11 years, but as long as he lives, Jeff will be unable to forget the face of his friend staring at him with hopeless eyes as he leaves her alone on the stairs that final time. In the second scenario, Judith man manages once again to rise, and against all odds, they both make it to the third floor landing where two firemen carry her the rest of the way to the lobby across the plaza and to safety. They are the last two people to exit the North Tower before it collapses, and Jeff is a hero. The third scenario finds Jeff and Judith somewhere between the 10th floor and the lobby, when Jeff hears the sound of the freight trains dropping from above, feels the hurricane wind as the pancaking floors above push the air down the shaft, and in his last conscious moments, he knows he took a risk and lost. But he also knows he made the right choice, and maybe he senses in those final moments that through his choice, he will testify to thousands of people he won't even meet until the second coming of Christ, about courage and about friendship and about the gospel of God's grace. And Jeff is a hero. And whether the risk is small or great, so is every Christian who takes it and goes to his or her Jerusalem without knowing as the Spirit compels, because that's how the gospel advances. And so, Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to come into our hearts and change the way we live and change our attitudes and whisper to us and draw us into your work. We give you permission to do that, and we know you will because you love the world. Thank you. In the name of your Son, we ask it. Amen.